Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Hey, we're going to do a couple things as we begin this morning. First of all, thank you for the generosity that Jamie uh, just spoke of. What you're investing here today, should you sacrifice uh, this particular weekend, uh, is going to make a huge difference. Whether you've done it online or you're doing it here this morning, uh, I want you to know it is changing lives and making a difference for the sake of the gospel in this county and throughout the world. And so thank you for trusting God enough to do that. Uh, second thing I want you to do is open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 as we prepare for the sermon and to see if you can ultimately uh, multitask. Uh, I'd like to ask those who have, are currently serving or have served in the past in our armed forces to stand wherever you are in the room and let us say in a very small way, thank you for the risk you took for our freedom. Would you stand wherever you are in the room today? Thank you. So in a very small way, that's not even close to being what you deserve. But let me say, because I could get up this morning and choose to come to this place and not have to be hassled or harassed, I don't, we don't hide in the underground church, we're able to come and gather and prepare and do all of this was because you were willing to put your life on the line so we could protect freedoms that matter. And we want to be a grateful people or it couldn't be worship. And so we worship Jesus who gave us the ultimate freedom, but we are grateful for our brothers and sisters who paid a price for us. And so we do honestly want to say thank you. Uh, if you are new to this church or just visiting, my name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here, and we're glad you're with us this morning. Last week, we're going to be in Luke 16, as I pointed out. Last week, Michael DeFazio spoke the first half of the chapter, the first 15 verses, in a parable that Jesus told about a man who was shrewd. And he, you define shrewdness. I looked it up this week as Michael talked about it. It's the quality of having or showing good judgment. And Jesus painted a scene where a man was about to be fired from his job for whatever reason, and he decided that he was going to look forward to his future and protect his future by taking care of those who owed him accounts. Now, it's very likely that he overcharged people so he could come to you and you owed him $50,000. He'd say, cut it to $30,000 and we'll count it good, knowing that by doing so, he really didn't harm his boss, but he actually prepared an opportunity for him to ask for a favor later. And Jesus said, isn't it funny how people are shrewder in the things of the world than they are with the things of the kingdom? And Michael taught us a great truth, that part of being shrewd is keeping an eye on eternity and making decisions about what's going on more than just this moment, this day, right now. And it was a pretty powerful sermon. Then he got in our business and it got a little annoying because what he taught us is what Jesus was actually pointing out. That one of the biggest indicators of an eye toward eternity is whether or not you're investing in God's kingdom or just in your own. And then he sinned greatly. And he ruined his sermon by confessing they have a cat. <laughs> so a few weeks ago, I asked you all to forgive me, and you were gracious and did. I hope you'll offer him the same thing this week. And he's going to be uh, on probation for a while. You won't see him up here for a while, but he's still good. He'll still make it. He's still surviving. For those of you who don't know me, move on. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Luke sixteen nineteen. This is the story that Jesus told in light of the same conversation from the story he told last week. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. 
At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you're in agony. And beside all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been filled, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from here to, or there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Jesus said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Yikes. You mean the resurrection doesn't have any cash? The resurrection doesn't have any juice or any power? It's not making a difference? Now, we know that that's not true because other passages of Scripture, even like 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul establishes that it's the resurrection that brings us the hope to trust Jesus even more. That's that's not what he means. And I'll show you what he means a little bit if you'll hang with me. I want to teach you three things from the parable. And then I want to do the application to our head, our hands, and our hearts about what it means to, to listen to what Jesus said and respond. Let's first of all talk about the parable and the lasting uh, identity. There's a lasting identity that's significant here in all of Jesus' parables. There's a, two characters that he draws in. I do believe it's a parable. I don't believe Jesus is telling us what is actually going on. But for those of you who want to believe he's actually describing what takes place after death, uh, it's okay because I believe this. Jesus doesn't use falsehoods to teach truths. So whether he's actually talking about what's going on or he's painting a picture of what it would be like, he's talking about the truth and we can learn from it either way. But in this parable, he's comparing two men. And that comparison and contrasting is important. First of all, one was rich and one was poor. One was covered with fancy clothes and one was covered with sores. One feasted every day and one starved most every day. One man had a big funeral, the other man was just buried. And then the most striking contrast of all is, one is named and the other is not. But the one who's not named is the one who we would know his name. He was the one who'd make People magazine. He's the one that would get alumni awards. He's the one that the community would make citizen of the year. He would be the one with riches and power and status and prestige. And so people would know his name. But upon his death, nobody knows his name. But they know the name of the one that nobody cared to know his name. His name's Lazarus. And the name Lazarus actually means God is my help. So when Jesus paints this scene, he's actually contrasting these things to get our attention. One man caught all the breaks, one man caught no breaks, and at the end of his life, the one who had a horrible life in our eyes is actually the one who found life, and the one who had a great life in the eyes of everybody actually had nothing. In fact, the one who would have been well-known doesn't even have a name, except he probably would be known as the guy who used to be rich. And boy, wouldn't that be a bad thing to carry for eternity, what you used to be, rather than what you are. You see, in every parable Jesus ever told, no one's named. There's a sower, there's a publican, there's a, uh, an owner, there's a shepherd, there's a woman, there's a Samaritan. But no one's given a name, but Jesus gives him his name here. You see, 
The man who's not remembered for his identity was rich and powerful and had status. And he built his whole life on those things. And then when his life ended, none of them transferred into his eternity. Or as Michael taught us last week, he didn't keep an eye on eternity. He only kept an eye on right now. And by focusing so much on the comfort of right now, he didn't invest in the thing he needed to invest in, the kingdom. And the one who had nothing to invest is actually known in the kingdom and received and blessed. And I want to be careful. This is not teaching us that heaven is for those who caught no breaks here and hell is for the people who did. It's not what it's teaching. That's inconsistent with other passages of scripture. Here's my sermon in one sentence. And some of you are going, oh, it can't be true. No, I'm going to keep going. But here's my sermon in one sentence. If you build your life on God and you receive the gifts of Jesus, when death comes, you will still be who you spent your life becoming. That's a big sentence and it's intricate. So I want to say it again. If you build your life on God and become alive through Jesus... When death comes, you will still be who you spent your life becoming. The sanctifying work that Jesus is doing, that sanctification is forming you into the fullness of Jesus Christ. And if you spend your life trusting God by living your life in faith in Jesus Christ, when you die, he will complete what he has started in you. And your identity will be known for eternity. If you spend your entire life based on your own control and your own wealth and your own status and your own power and your own comfort, then when your life ends, the things you have built your life on will be gone and you will have no identity with the one who wanted to teach you who you really were. You see, whether we call him the man who used to be rich and Lazarus, if I just called it this, there's a story. There was a man who relied on God for everything in his life to sustain him. And there was a man who relied on himself to sustain his life with all he had, and they both died. It's the same parable, right? But by Jesus naming him, something significant happens there. The second thing I want to point out is that this identity goes on through eternity. This identity is our hope. Let's read verses 23 and 24 again. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. There's a couple of tactical things I need to point out here to to make sure you understand what's happening here. Abraham, for those of you who don't have this background, we're glad you're here. And let me explain this to you, not to make you feel foolish, but to bring you into the conversation. Abraham was the man, the first man, who trusted God completely by faith. And when he had to trust God by faith, it wasn't comfortable or convenient. In fact, he said, leave your riches, leave your title, leave your land, and come to a land that I'm not going to tell you where I'm taking you till I get you there. And I'm going to lead you through things that are going to be difficult. And I'm going to form your identity, and you'll be known as Father Abraham. And you will have more kids than you can count the the pieces of sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. So when they use the term Father Abraham, his audience would have known. He's talking about the first person who stepped out by faith and trusted God completely. The second thing you point out here is some of your translations say Hades and some say hell. Uh, I, I tend to believe Hades is the place that we go when we die awaiting the final judgment. If you are without Christ, and I believe paradise, according to this story, is the place that you go and await the final judgment of believers. And yes, believers will be judged, but there is no threat. Jesus covered the punishment. 
And in this scene, you have this moment where when life ends, it is decided. It messes up some theology of some other groups who want to believe that you can kind of work yourself around afterwards. No, Jesus is showing us, if he is addressing the reality of it, is when death comes, you will have to live with the decision you made. To walk by faith or to walk by flesh. And so notice what he asks for. It's kind of surprising to me that this man realizing that he is not where he wanted to end up actually expects the one who is in the presence of Abraham to serve him. You notice this? He can't get over what he's made of himself. He's like, I've always been in charge and people like that do my bidding. So Abraham, have him run over and quench my thirst. Abraham's like, nah. Nope, sorry. And then he's, he's saying, I'm in agony here. I'm, I'm suffering. I, he's supposed to serve me because his entire life he served me. You see, when Jesus paints the picture, the rich man walked by Lazarus every day, didn't even know his name, didn't even care about him. And you, you picture this grotesque scene, and it's supposed to be startling. That this man whose body is breaking down by starvation and his poverty and his brokenness is laying there. He's got open sores probably because he can't move around and he's not being cared for and he doesn't have good nutrition and the dogs are licking his wounds. And before you transfer that into your your cute little poodle at home that loves you and will protect you. That's not what these animals were doing. These animals would have been street animals and they would have seen him as their next meal as soon as he died. And they were sizing him up. And Jesus paints this horrific scene that no one should have to live through. He talks about a man who had great banquets and everything he needed over and over and over. And he expects the guy who he never served to serve him. You see, our identities... What we've made of ourselves will carry over into eternity. Verse 25, Abraham replies, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Son, you made a choice. What Michael said last week, and in all honesty, all joking aside, what stuck with me over and over is the simplest statement of, of many great things he said was, Mark, are you actually looking for eternity in the decisions you're making today or are you just getting through today worrying about eternity another day? I, I'm, I'm afraid I know the answer to that most of the time. Eternity is inconvenient because it's not right now. And when I'm hungry, I'm not worried about my health. I'm worried about my belly. And when I don't have something I want, I'm not worried about whether I need it. I'm worried about why can't I have it. And the choices you make, you see, people will not, listen to me carefully, people will not be in hell because God's got mad and got even. People will be in hell because they told God to leave them alone and he will. And hell is the absence of God. It's not the punishment and the flames and the, the darkness and all the things we fear. It's actually living out what we chose to live like on this side. Living out our own dependency, living out our own comfort, living out all about me and selfishness. So he says, no, you had what you built your life on, and now it's gone. And he had none of the things you built your life on, and now he's with me. And note what he implies in verse 27. He answers, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. He's still giving Lazarus work. That bothers me, but I'll move on. Send him to my father's house where I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. In other words, he's saying, I know I missed it. You're right. I chose this. I wasn't thinking. You see, it wasn't because he was just corrupt and evil. It's because he wasn't thinking about eternity. He didn't have the long play in mind. He was only thinking about the now. And I know none of us in this room have that problem, do we? Selling 
the long-term away to have the short-term satisfaction. And he says, but my brothers, they, they're doing the same thing. And if no one tells them, what will they do? They'll, see, they'll keep choosing what they've chosen. You see, when you want to understand what a parable is actually talking about, it's crucial that we look to who Jesus told the story to. If you just pop the story out and you don't put it in the context of the dialogue taking place, we can make most parables teach anything we want. But if you leave them in their scene, let's go back to the text from last week, Luke 16, verses 14 and 15. Just look up top of your page and you'll see it. The Pharisees who loved money heard all these and were sneering at Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. What's the choice he made? He decided to do the short play rather than the long play. To not focus on eternity and what things actually are worth, but actually to focus on how he could live comfortably right now. And he chose the things that men highly praise. But Jesus said, you are the ones who justify yourselves. The issue is not that the poor are going to get heaven because they were poor and the rich are going to go to hell because they're rich. Jesus is actually saying, the reason I'm telling you this story is you justify yourselves. You're saying to me, I don't need your help. I've got it covered. I'm better than most. I'm more successful than most. I'm going to accomplish more than other people. So in the comparative game, I've got to be in the top 30%. And Jesus is like, you don't understand. Only the perfect make it into heaven. And you ain't it. And so in light of this, this self-justification, remember what I said? If you live your life trusting God and receiving what Jesus came to offer you, then you will become what he is turning you into. But if you trust your wealth and your comfort and your status and your prestige, then you will spend eternity having none of those to sustain you and your self-justification only condemns. And then notice what condition it is when we realize that the reason we're without God is because we didn't rely on him, we didn't trust him, and we didn't receive him. Verse 25 says he's in agony. The God-justified existence was found in Lazarus. And the formerly rich man is a figurative example of those who want to justify themselves comparatively and miss the point. You see, this identity is not only eternal, it's marked by generosity. How do I know if I'm looking to the future? Michael pointed out last week, and I'll point it out again. It's marked by generosity. It's how you look at what God's given you. Are you investing it in his kingdom or in your own? You want to know if you're a God-justified, grace-based person? Do you want to know that if, if, if you're actually a Lazarus reliant on God? then how you see others is the indicator of whether or not you've actually received grace. How you love God by loving people is the indicator of whether or not you and I have understood and received the grace that Jesus came to bring us. When their comfort and their care becomes more important than my comfort and my care, I will have understood what grace living is like. Easiest way to put it is, did Jesus give up his comfort so that I could find some? Did Jesus give up his power so I could receive hope? Did Jesus allow his identity to be hidden so I could find my identity in him? Absolutely. Each and every way. The choices he made were the choices to give grace so that we could receive grace. And by receiving grace, we can live it out. It means that how I treat the poor and other races, other classes, religions, 
and even those who live at different moral standards. How I treat them and how I offer them the same grace I've received is an indicator of whether or not I'm reliant on God or I'm choosing to just make it about me. A real love, a real compassion, a heart poured out in deeds of service is the inevitable sign that you know you're a sinner saved by grace. So this is what we've learned. There is a lasting identity that's eternal and it, it has a huge impact on how we treat others and how we serve them, how we offer them from our, our bounty, how we offer them from our blessings, how we even risk to give to others who have a need. So how do we receive this identity and, and generosity? How do, we, how do we know if it's ours? What are we supposed to do with all of it? At the end of the parable, Jesus has Abraham dialoguing with this man. And of course, this man is still proud. And he says, I know the solution. Send someone back. Verse 30. If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Jesus, speaking through this Father Abraham character, says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What does he mean? Does he mean that his resurrection is not going to make a difference? No. The resurrection is exciting, and I can prove it. Because every Easter, these seats aren't open. I mean, look around you. Some of you got your own row. On Easter, no, no. In fact, I know that Easter's exciting because some of you who haven't seen an 8 o'clock service since last Easter know what I'm talking about. To be with my friends and family, to all be in church together to celebrate the resurrection, I'm not making fun of you. I'm telling you, I see the evidence. On Mother's Day, these seats aren't open. Some people are here because they love their moms and some because they fear their moms, but they're in church. And you come together and you sit in a big row and you all dress up, even if it's only annually, and you come to church and you sit, why? Because you love your moms. Great moms, bad moms, it doesn't matter. We love our moms and our moms have loved us, even if it's been imperfect on both ends. But we gather in here. And boy, we bring children up on stage and we have a kid's Sunday and they dress up all cute in their little dresses and their little bow ties. And these front seats aren't open. I'm still getting my feelings hurt when people don't run up and take pictures of me when I walk out on stage like you do when the kids come out, but I'm getting over it. I really am. I'm getting over it. What I'm trying to tell you is <clears throat> being funny, or that was attempted to be funny, so let's go forward. If You hear what I'm saying? Five or six times a year, I can get you, we can get you, your friends can get you, your family can get you excited about coming to worship, and you'll come, and you'll be expected, and you'll be excited, but Jesus never called us to stay excited. He called us to stay committed. And excitement is when we do special things that are unique and, and we put people we love in special places. That's exciting. But what it takes hard work is to love your family every day and to love your kids every day and to love your spouse every day and to do the hard digging and the hard work and the hard effort. Jesus didn't call us to have this exciting experience. What he said was go back and study what Moses and the prophets talked about, that God would send one <clears throat> to us who would pay the sacrifice for us because he loved us. You see, love is what moves the ball, not excitement. There's no crowd cheering yesterday at a college football game that scored a point. The players were moved by the dedication and the discipline and the hard work it took to pull the play off. We need to stop equating, well, it didn't do anything for me today, then do something yourself. Because what Jesus is calling for is a commitment that sees eternity as worth the price of living a life that the world will not applaud here. So he's calling people. And even if someone rises from the dead, he said, no, what they need to understand is why 
I died on the cross. So I want to encourage you. How do you engage? Instead of saying, well, I didn't like this or I didn't like that or I don't always like going to church or it's not convenient or whatever, let's move away from church and let's realize that Jesus is asking us to follow him to death. The only place carrying your cross takes you is to die. Think about Jesus on his cross. What did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't cry out, my God, my God, this is so humiliating. I am naked in front of all of these people. He didn't cry out, my God, my God, the nails hurt. He didn't cry out, my God, my God, I'm suffocating. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, where have you gone? You see, the chasm, Jesus experienced it. For the first time in all of history, and even before there was history, Jesus and God were one. And he experienced the chasm of hell, of being separated from the Father. He descended into that for you and I. So instead of worrying about how exciting it is, remember how real it is. And if you want to spend some time engaging your head, then take Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. I'm going to ask you to do this. I I don't check homework. But if you feel like I can't get over it, it's not exciting, then I'm going to ask you to take Isaiah 52 and 53 this week. And read it every single day. It will take you seven, eight minutes at the most to read those two chapters. And spend some time asking yourself, how much am I loved? How much have I been cared for? What price was paid to tell me who I am? And if you read Isaiah 52 and 53 out loud and you write it down a few times and you spend some time in it, trust me, it will be more exciting than anything you've ever been excited about to know who you are, to know how long that will last, and to know the price. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was actually crying out the promise of Isaiah 52 and 3. He experienced the chasm. So how do you embrace your head? Embrace that truth that we live in a distracting life. The world is speaking to us, and it's telling us things, and it's saying, buy short, buy short, buy short. And Jesus is saying, invest long. Invest long. Don't settle for the comfort of today at the price of tomorrow. Do the hard work. Dig through love, not through energy and excitement and what you receive from it, but give and love as he did. And not only doing that, engaging the head, let's engage the hands and the heart. You see, it won't last long how successful you've been. It won't matter for long whether you are rich It doesn't matter for long whether you're comfortable. It will matter forever whether you're responsive to his compassion and you offer that compassion. One of my professors who was very instrumental in my life, his wife passed away at 97 years of age. I want everything in my power to go back to that funeral tomorrow in Michigan. I'm not going to be able to. What makes my heart sad is for 97 years, this beautiful lady served the Lord, served her husband, served our college, sacrificed, was never famous, was never popular, and oh my, never rich. She's the richest woman I've ever met today. And the, and the world doesn't know her story, but I do. And do you think she has any regrets for the price she paid to be faithful to Jesus? Absolutely none. Will the world even know she's gone? No, they won't. It's our loss not hers. The short play will get you a lot of comfort today. The long play will give you an identity with your master. Let your head think about that and then let your hands and your heart go share that with somebody who doesn't know their identity.
You see, the formerly rich man didn't care about the poor and the hurting. And Jesus said that was, that was indication that he didn't care about what he was being offered. He made it about him instead of about everyone else. God is clearly compassionate for the needs of the poor. He has been from the very beginning. And I know I have to walk a careful line here because there are some people taking advantage of others and faking poverty. I get it. But every now and then someone will come up and say, I really want to help someone, but I don't want to be taken advantage of. And let me tell you this. I think we're here to be taken advantage of just like Jesus was. I think of a heart of compassion speaks even though the person receiving it doesn't quite understand why we do what we do. We are to love. They will know we are Christians by what? By the way we love and show compassion to one another. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it so simply to the early church. One of the first books written in the New Testament. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. You see, the compassion of Jesus is for us, but the compassion of Jesus makes us for others, which means we deny our comfort, we look at our abundance, and we see those who don't have We see those who are poor in spirit and poor in heart and poor in flesh and poor in finances and we serve and we love and we give. Why? Because we've been given to. This morning, normally when I'm done with the message, and I will tell you even today that around these room are four tables with lamps lit and some of our elders and staff are going to be heading to those tables right now and as they make their way to those tables to pray with you, there will be some of us that are, are hurting and struggling and we need help. Go to these tables and speak. Please, talk to these folks. That's why they're here. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus and realize, boy, I, I could very easily in the story be the, the formerly rich man. I have so much and God's not mad that you have much, but God's disappointed when our hearts aren't moved by compassion for those who have nothing. And it's not just their problem. It's, it's our statement of hope. Let's go out and do what we do so they know who they are in Christ, not so they know who we are. It's not about Christ's church. It's about Jesus. So whether you go to this table this morning during this time of movement, you can go as we sing or you can wait till after the service. We'll all be available to have a conversation with you. We can pray with you. But I'm really calling those of you today who don't know who Jesus is, find out who you are by trusting him. Find out your eternal identity so you can know what he's offering you in hope. Normally when I'm done preaching, I'll ask you to stand as we sing a song, but this morning we're going to do it just a little bit different. Chip's going to come up and sing a powerful song and I'm going to ask you if you don't know the song to meditate see the words on the screen listen to the song and just let yourself bask let your head engage your heart this morning if you do know the song you're more than welcome to sing along with us but we're going to ask you to remain seated for this time to just spend some time contemplating the goodness of God offered to each one of us so that we can offer the goodness of God to those who don't know who they are Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.